Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. The Christian faith will always have opponents, skeptics, and seekers who attempt to challenge its credibility, which is why apologetics is always a necessity. Moreover, we need apologists because there are a wide diversity of intellectual challenges and personalities which must be engaged with when defending the faith. On today's show, my guest is a Christian apologist with a new book that provides a unique approach to presenting Christianity to the skeptic. His name is Neil Shinvey, and we discussed his book, Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. Neil Shinvey is a theoretical chemist, chemist and has worked as a research scientist at Yale University and Duke University, and has published over 30 peer-reviewed papers. He is a regular blogger at Shinvi Apologetics, writing on current issues and book reviews. He is married to Christina and currently homeschools their four children. Before we get into this episode, real quick, just let me remind you to subscribe to our email list so that you can get all future episodes sent directly into your inbox. Just visit the link to my website in the show notes below and you can subscribe there. Also, be sure that you are following Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. If you're helped by this episode or any of our others that you have listened to, we really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review or shared the show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and write us a review on Apple iTunes as well. Whenever you take these simple steps, it only takes a minute of your time, but it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Neil Shinvey. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for accepting the invitation. I've been looking forward to it, been following your work and your writing for several years now, and uh, appreciated the work that you do and and so on. Uh, also, I, we got to briefly meet at the Defend Conference at NOBTS a couple of years ago and uh, enjoyed your work there. And so, yeah, uh, thanks for coming on today. Sure. We're here to talk about your, uh, your new book coming out from Crossway called Why Believe? an apologetics book. And so what is it that inspired you to write a book on apologetics? So I've always liked apologetics ever since I became a Christian, really. And uh, I got into it pretty a lot during my postdoc at Yale. I actually went on to a, um, a high school friend's, friend's blog. <laughs> who I was invited onto this guy's blog because he was an atheist. And my friend told me he'll talk you out of all that religion stuff. So I go on the blog and, and really had like a trial by fire in terms of having to defend my Christian faith. And I realized that, wow, this is, it's possible to do this. You can, there are good arguments for the Christian faith and I should know them better. So I began reading a lot of, uh, actually, I read a lot of atheist works because I wanted to really understand their perspective and their arguments, not just, you know, give my own. Um, and so when I was at Yale, one of the things that I did was I bought um, a book of Tim Keller's Reason for God, a, a box, or a box of Tim Keller's Reason for God, a whole case of them, and I gave them away at like the dining hall area with a friend of mine who worked for Crew, and so I really enjoyed that book, and I gave tons of copies out. But after a while, I was like, "This is getting expensive." So I, I if I should write my own book, and I'll give it out for free. So that was my incentive, and. Uh, I actually, so I finished the book around 2016 and then kind of sat in my, on my desktop, uh, in my computer for years. So I tried to figure out what to do with it. So a few years ago, my friend, Pat Sawyer said, you know, give me the book. I'll, I'll take care of it. And sure enough, he got, uh, connected to Crossway and they agreed to publish it. So that was so my, my incentive was basically, I wanted to give, provide people with access to apologetics and, um, and now since they're selling it, uh, it's not going to be free. But um, the sort of perspective I took was I wanted to write a book like Keller's Reason for God, which I really appreciate, but more evidence-driven. And um, I call it, my book is Reason for God for STEM majors. Uh, and one other sort of 
thing I thought about was there are a lot of books that I appreciate out there that uh, like like uh, Lee Shribble's reason for uh, Lee Shribble's case for Christ is a um, a good book. I enjoyed it, but it's very how do I put this? It's not a, an intellectual book. It's it's very accessible, but I would not really feel comfortable handing that to a professor at a, at a at an elite university, for example. I wanted to write a book that would be accessible enough for students and college students to read it, but that they would be comfortable handing that book to their professors. So I tried to aim for that audience when I was writing my book. It's you know it's it's not totally esoteric and hard to read, but it's the kind of thing that has some intellectual heft. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about your background and how you think that influenced you writing this book. Sure. So I grew up in a very loving and moral household, but my parents are not Christian. And so I was kind of raised to be more or less a secular humanist. I believed in God. I was not an atheist, but I also kind of had my own vision of God. And so when I went to college at Princeton, um, I had very little religious background, formal religious education at all. I remember uh, when I was in college, I think it was a sophomore but I, as I knew Christians believed in the Trinity, and so I was like, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That, that's like, the Holy Ghost is Jesus after he rose from the dead, right? He was a ghost. So that must be the Trinity. That's how little understanding I had of sort of Christian theology. But I considered myself like very educated. So um, in my, my senior year of college, I met my future wife, Christina, who was an evangelical Christian. And uh, we began dating, which I always say is dangerous idea. You know what we intended for evil, God intended for good. But um, but through knowing her and going to church with her is how I really heard the gospel. Uh, another and in the book I talk about this, but I read a lot of C.S. Lewis, especially the Screwtip Letters, was very important to me. And then again through going to church with her and meeting and meeting also professors at Berkeley in grad school who were Christians. Um, and openly Christian and thinking these people are smart. They're not dumb. This can't be that intellectually. Uh, it, has to, it has to have some kind of credibility for them to believe this. And so that's how, that's how I became a Christian. We can talk more about that too, but that, that's my background. And then again, shortly after that is when I got interested in apologetics. Yeah. So, so did it start out as your your journey to faith? Did it start out as an intellectual curiosity that you then continued, or was it more of a like personal existential need that that, that drove you to start exploring? It definitely was not an intellectual journey. So it's actually interesting. One of the reasons I knew that Christianity couldn't be completely false was I took a class at Princeton as a non Christian my senior year. I took a class um, on the origins of the New Testament. Taught by John Gager, and we read books by like the Jesus Seminar, Elaine Pagels, and other very you know liberal non-Christian New Testament scholars. And but but from that class, we were taught, and we used actually Bart Ehrman's textbook uh, in that yeah. class as our, as our text. Mm -hmm. But from all those readings, uh, I knew that Jesus was a real figure, a human, a person. He was an actually existing figure. So you know, later the Jesus mythicist movement, which would deny that even happens, it's very academically marginal. But um, for whatever reason, a lot of atheists have gravitated towards that position, which is very strange. But so I knew enough to know that he was a real figure. And then I, I even, so it was not like this fictional story. I knew it was a, a real, it was based on at least a real historical figure. But then I just couldn't, there were a lot of things I couldn't believe in terms of, or I didn't want to believe, put it that way. Uh, and I remember so a lot of it was just that I didn't think it, I needed to look into it intellectually because I associated Christianity with things I didn't like. like I didn't like um, the idea of God's being wrathful, of there being a hell, of there being one way to to be forgiven. I didn't like any of that stuff. And so I just wrote Christianity off intellectually. It can't be true. Well, why? Well, because I don't like it. <laughs> you think of that as a scientist. That's a terrible way to go about thinking about anything. It's like, well, I don't like this. It must not be true. But but what so because it, my 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 main objections were not intellectual they were volitional and emotional because of that uh, when I became a Christian and this is almost sort of what it is it was more about recognizing my need that you whether or not you like this you you need this <laughs> so it's not and so again so for me it was never like well is it true or is it false primarily because I kind of was like well. I guess it could be true. Is mainly I don't like this, 
and coming to realize, well, it's not about whether you like it or not. It's about whether or not you are a sinner who needs forgiveness. And so I think I became a Christian. I was, again, it's in the, it's in the, the book, but the night I became a Christian, um, I kind of just was asking my wife, my future wife, all these questions about, um, you know, how could hell exist if God's a loving God? How could it be one? What about, what about devout Muslims and devout Buddhists? And she just said, well, I don't have all the answers. And that floored me because I had created my own God, my own vision of God. And I had all the answers because I made him. So for her to admit that I don't, well, God's a real God and I don't have to understand all the answers to know that he is who he says he is. Again, maybe not at the time, but at least subconsciously it made me realize this is a real person I'm dealing with, a real God. And that, and that, so I basically told God that night, I was like, I don't know who you are anymore. I thought I knew I had my own spiritual, but not religious beliefs, yeah. but I don't know anymore. And so, but and I even know if Jesus is your son, but if Jesus is your son, I'm willing to follow him. Hmm. And that was, I think I became a Christian that night. And it was like, in obviously my theology had a long way to go, but it started with just saying, I don't know who you are, but I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to follow. Um, and then after that, I got involved in a Bible study right away and people discipled me for four years. But it's, it's amazing that, and it's, I think it's actually pretty typical that we discover that behind all of the intellectual arguments and questions, which we can answer, there always are volitional and existential barriers that have to come down before people will take the gospel seriously. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I find that more often than not, that is really the, like you said, volitional or existential reasons that are holding people back from committing to Christ. Uh, and there's an intellectual veneer or cover over mm. it. Um, or, may, or maybe they think an intellectual veneer, but once communicated, it doesn't sound all that intellectual. <laughs> it's just rehashed uh, objections that they heard third hand from you know, someone else that was said by Dawkins or whoever else. But I think that your story uh, it sounds a lot like um, the stories that, uh, of a lot of people out there today. And so I wondered, does your experience and the way you came to faith and the things that you learned through it, especially that experience of um, recognizing God, God as a person, mm-hmm. do you find that that has helped you in the way that you communicate to people who are seeking or uh, maybe even closed off to Christianity today? I think so. I, I mean, I, I think in the, if you look at the, the book structured, uh, the first three sections are about sort of standard arguments for God's existence for Christian, and it's all geared around Christ- Christianity. It's not about trying to show that some generic God exists. It's about whether the Christian God exists. So, the, but the first three sections are about things like the resurrection, the identity of Jesus, Lord, liar, lunatic, um, the existence of the Christian God, not just a generic God, but there's a you know good, holy, loving, just creator of the universe. Um, does that kind of God exist? A God, God who 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 fits into the Christian worldview, who's described by the Bible. But the final section is about the gospel as the best argument for Christianity. The idea that, which is you know, a lot of the book, you're like, yeah, I've kind of heard these arguments before. Hopefully I did some good scholarship. It's, I read a lot of atheist writings and responded to them. But it's fairly standard, fairly standard apologetic stuff that you'd be familiar with. But the last section, I think, as far as I can tell, is a, a more or less new approach to apologetics, which is um, the idea that the message that we are sinners who need rescue is evidence that Christianity is true. and I think that's that argument, that whole way of thinking is informed by my own experience, which is that um, when people hear that message and realize, one, it's true, and two, it's unique among world religions, that's what is evidence for them that Christianity is true. And so I, I developed that extensively over the last quarter of the book. Um, but I think I do think that that's uh, it's, it should be comforting to Christians because on the one hand, uh, in terms of their own our own faith, when we're doubting, we're saying, well, is this really true? You can always go back to this. Like, well, what is your deepest need? And I think if you're a regenerate Christian, you just intuitively are immediately aware that your deepest need is forgiveness. It's just, that's just what it is. Like if you ask me in the morning, what do I need? It's, it's forgiveness. It's, it's, it's reconciliation. It's, and um, it, there are no other religions out there offering 
what Christianity offers, not in the same yeah. way that saying yeah. your deepest need is zero sinner and your deepest need is redemption and rescue. Not something you can do, not, not a moral boost, not better obedience. You need to be made new. You need to be adopted and beloved as a child of God. There's no other religion offering that. And mm-hmm. if that's true, then I, it's like, it's like saying, you know, if you're a, a man in a desert who's, you know, about to die of dehydration and you see an oasis, you know, and someone says to you, well, that's probably an illusion. And they hear, hear, instead, you should just eat the sand. You're like, I'm not going to even bother eating the sand because maybe you're right. Maybe the, the, the oasis is an illusion. I'll die on my way there. I'll get there and it'll be, it'll be just more sand. But there's no point in staying here because I'm going to die here anyway. So I might as well die on my way to the, to the only hope that can possibly save me. In the same way for a doubting Christian, look, there aren't any other religions out there who are offering to rescue you. There are other saviors, you know, they're, they're teachers, there are examples, there are exemplars, there are self-help gurus, but there's no other savior. And, the, and, and so you might as well die at the foot of the cross, even if it's a lie, you might as well die there, then, then die here. And it's, and it's not a lie. But then also for evangelism, you don't have to master the Kalam cosmological argument. You don't have to master the fine tuning argument. You have to master the evidence for the resurrection. It, it's helpful, but simply sharing the gospel I'm arguing in the book that, that that itself is, we know theologically, it's the power unto salvation for those who believe. And also intellectually, it's enough because people will hear it and say, that's that's so unique of a message. And if the Holy Spirit convicts them, it will be immediately known as true, right? Just yeah. instant, instantly, the, the, you know, that the God, I look at um, a lot of people have talked about how God can, you know, make can regenerate our hearts and and make us aware that Christianity is true. But I would argue, what if the way he does that is by basically making us sane for a moment? We're, we're normally insane. We normally hide our sin irrationally. We, we are sinners. It's obvious we're sinners, but we conceal it from ourselves because we're insane. So the Holy Spirit then just takes off those blinders and says, wake up. And we wake up like, that's obviously true. And therefore Christianity is true. So it's it's both for Christians to be strengthened in their own belief, but also for people to be confident in their evangelism that all you need is the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, so I can definitely see the influences on the book from your past experience and your your testimony and how you came to faith, talking about the the volitional barriers that are holding you back. I can see Mm -hmm. that reflected in the chapters and the specific objections that you uh, approach in the book, especially in the introduction, talking about uh, the the is Christianity beneficial? Is it good that we should be uh, debating over religion and and, and truth and so on? Uh, I can see the evidence of your scientific background and the heavy focus on um, on evidences, mm-hmm. right? And and and, uh, and our need in the gospel. And so, speaking of influences, what? apologetics have influenced your faith the most faith the most whether it was whenever you were becoming a christian and you were maybe reading some apologetics or you're a new christian and working through your uh, uh your your new theology and uh, in your discipleship what apologetics have shaped you and had the biggest influence on you i know you mentioned keller already but what others yeah definitely keller um c.s lewis a lot i think is a really good at uh I think his, only his, his fiction and his nonfiction both were very um, compelling for me. I've read this critic letters probably 20 or 30 times without exaggeration. Wow. It's a very really? powerful book. Um, and just a very, and for me, I read that, I probably read that 10 times, maybe 20 times before becoming a Christian. And again, it, what compelled me about it was I was not a Christian, but his understanding of what was going on in my head was uncanny. I was like, and, and, and again, it's it's interesting because I was like, how does he understand? How does he know that? I haven't read any other author who knew what temptations I faced, what it was like to to always be posing and prancing and hiding the things that were wrong with me. How does he know all that? And well, the answer was because it's true, and he's a Christian, and he is aware of spiritual reality in a way that is immediately recognizable to me, even though I'm not a Christian. So that, that should have been, and it, since it was, but it should have been evidence that his religion is teaching him things that are true about human nature. Um, so yeah, Lewis was very, so Keller's book, Reason for God, I really enjoyed. Uh, C.S. Lewis's, all of his books pretty much. Um, in terms of 
apologetics. I think William Lane Craig's debates are really good. I really enjoy listening to them, uh, not only because he's a great debater, but because I like to hear how people respond to arguments. It's easy to give it a convincing monologue. It's really been frustrating for me lately. I think our society is so polarized that you often get people on soapboxes who can make very compelling cases when they're not challenged. I want to hear people that can make a compelling case when they are challenged, not just by some random audience member, but by experts. I want to have two knowledgeable people sort of duke it out on stage. Now, again, you know, like, oh, that sounds, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's harmful. It's not, it's like, no, we have to, we have to be willing to expose ourselves to uncomfortable ideas. If we, if you believe the truth, you shouldn't be challenged by someone questioning you and, and giving other perspectives. And so I really firmly believe that we need more of that kind of dialogue. You don't want debates, fine, do dialogues, but where you can hear uh, counter arguments. Um, so I've really enjoyed his debates. I don't think anyone else I, um, appreciate i like greg kokel's work a lot and again he's very good at asking questions i think he's one of his big tactics yeah. asking good questions um i think i don't think anyone else that i have on my shelf um i i mainly i mean for uh for my own reading again i've read tons of atheist authors not just the popular works by guys like dawkins and harris but i've delved into a little bit to atheist philosophers um and different very you know atheists or not atheists but non-christian specialist scholars like uh, bart ehrman paula Fredrickson, the jesus seminar you know touching on different op- topics relevant to christianity um so actually I've, like i said i i have enjoyed reading atheist authors uh, or and non-christian authors just because it gives me it challenges me i, I don't want i you know i'm always terrified that of giving a bad argument i'd rather i'd rather you know, not if I don't, I'd rather give one strong argument than four weak ones. I don't want any way. So I think it's really important for me then to check myself and read uh, these other voices to make sure I'm giving robust, defensible arguments. Yeah, that's great. And so whenever it comes to communicating our apologetics today, um, specifically with a in a time that's so dominated by media, social media, uh, what's the, the, what are some of the primary ways that you see yourself engaging in apologetics today, uh, online? And what are, what are some of the lessons you learned about engaging in apologetics, uh, in our current climate of dialogue? Well, you know, I, people will also com- often complain about how social media is accessible and it, and it is, um, but I do think it gives the opportunity for some kind of dialogue. And when I dialogue, and lately, unfortunately, I've spent most of my time talking about other issues besides apologetics. I, I've, if people follow me on Twitter, they see me talking and writing, reading a lot about critical theory, which is obviously relevant to our culture and, and even to our theology. But um, doing that a lot has taught me, um, one, is that your primary audience is not necessarily the person you're talking to. It's the third party people who are watching. You know, there's an audience you have that's bigger than just the guy that you're that's answering, is asking you questions or even berating you. And so that's all. So, and that second point then is that your, your approach and your tone has to be tailored, not just to your person that you're dialoguing with, but to the other people in the room. So for example, I just uniformly have this, I try, I strive for a very moderate, ironic, gentle tone. That's not always necessary. The Bible's full of examples of people speaking very harshly. But I'm always mindful that while a harsh tone might be relevant, might be proper uh, to, for the person I'm dealing with one-on-one, mm-hmm. if I'm being watched by a thousand other people who it's not appropriate for where they're coming from, then I have to be mindful that they're listening too, and so I try. So, so my general, then my general approach then is to um, to treat. All, I mean, the Bible commands us to treat people with gentleness and respect, to be kind, um, to use soft words, to not be quarrelsome. Um, but even when there are occasions to speak more forcefully, I think I've taken the approach that you know there. I'm literally I'm on a platform where there literally could be a thousand people listening. I'd rather err on the side of being again very clear and and direct and uh, and at times challenging, but never to speak unkindly. 
Um, and again, I'm not saying it's always wrong. I'm just saying that I think it's helpful to take it to just remember you're not just speaking to one person. You're always speaking to a huge audience, which could potentially go viral and reach millions. So just be aware yeah. of that. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a good point. I think it's it's an inescapable reality of using social media um, because it's something that I think someone could take what you what you just said and, and twist it to say that, well, everything you're doing then is just performative. Mm-hmm. Right. All, all your answers and responses are just are just so that you can gain the attention of the crowds or or so on. Um, and in a sense, you could end up being like all performative. Right. Mm. And, and and saying and doing things uh, in, in that way. But uh, but yeah, I think that what you said is, it, yeah, it's an inescapable reality that there's always that third party there. And so responding well that you're per to responding well to the person that you're responding to, um, but with the understanding that, that, yeah, there's, there's more listening. I think that's a great point. The funny thing that performative performativity also is that if you really want to gain a following on social media, the best way is not to be moderate and kind and gentle. The best way is to say crazy things and start screaming at people in all caps. And that's how you draw an audience. You quote, tweet your enemies and mock them and dunk on them and you pile on, you join pylons. So ironically, the people would say, well, you know, uh, you're just doing this for the, for the benefit of everyone else. It's like, well, not exactly, not in the way you're saying. I'm doing it, to, like Paul says, to become all things to all men so that by some ways I may save some. I, I, I want, again, I'm not going to compromise on what I'm saying, but the way I'm saying it, uh, the, the, I want people to feel like I'm being respected, I'm, I'm being loved, even if they're telling me, Neil's telling me something I really don't want to hear. Um, and again, plenty of times, even when I do that, they'll hate me not for the, what I'm, how I'm conveying the truth, but for the truth I'm conveying, that's fine. It's not my, I'm not, I'm not responsible for that. You know, go take it up with God. Essentially. If I, if I'm truthfully saying what he, what is true and I am clear and and then that's not me. You're angry at ultimately. Now, of course I can, I can be a jerk and then you're angry at me rightfully. But if I'm not, then it's off, it's out of my hands essentially. And so I, people shouldn't be afraid either. If, If people are angry at you, that's not a sign that you're doing something wrong necessarily. It could be they simply don't like what you're saying. And again, if you're saying what's true, it's not your fault. Yeah. How do we balance out when we're doing apologetics or we're having these discussions online or we're having, we're talking to a person, how do we balance out? Because there's a lot of talk about like winsomeness, right? Mm -hmm. And making and being persuasive um, and our appeal and and so on. Is, Is there a balance we have to strike between like winsomeness, but then also... Uh, like necessary confrontation with mm-hmm. the world and with, with, with lies and truth? Uh, is, the, is there a balance we have to strike between uh, offensiveness and persuasion? You, so you see what I'm getting at? The thing, like I said, I do. I actually, the whole winsomeness debate, I think no one's ever accused me of not being winsome. In fact, people have criticized me for always being winsome and ironic uh, and peacemaking. But I would say is this though, two things. One is, um, I, there's no lack of people who dislike me. Um, as, and it, but the, my goal is that it's always because of what I am saying, not how I'm saying it. And, and if you think, if you think, and this is the, the, but here's the other, here's the thing that I actually worry about though. I do worry about people that are inclined like myself towards winsomeness and being ironic and peacemaking and people that have that inclination. We gauge, we can gauge our, faithfulness by whether people like us or not. That is absolutely not the gauge, the measure for our faithfulness. The only measure for our faithfulness is whether we're doing what God commands, which is telling this, speaking the truth in love. And so in terms of balancing winsomeness and confrontation, I do confront, I confront quite a lot, but it's always about the arguments and what's true and right. It's never about getting angry or emotional or pulling at people's, you know, tweet, pick, picking on, you know, it's, it's always about, this is a false teaching. It must be rejected. It's not, I don't say this because I hate you or despise you. It's because this is false and I hate it. This idea is wrong. And, and that, that, that there is, I just guarantee you, if you're worried, Oh, you're just doing it because you want to be liked. No, I'm not. Cause there are better ways to be liked than speaking the truth. <laughs> So I, I think as long as you hold, as long as your principal primary goal is honoring God by defending the truth, you will make plenty of enemies. 
but let it not be. And Jesus says, you'll be hated for my sake. If you, you know, not, not if you are hated, therefore you are doing what's right. But if you are doing what's right, you will be hated. That's yeah. a promise. So the only goal then is that we speak the truth, we do it in love, and and in that will, Jesus promises attract people that loathe us and despise us. We shouldn't. And he actually, he says, rejoice in that day and be glad, right? And that and that that's almost sounds. And you know, we're not reveling in being hated. We're reveling in the fact that we've spoken the truth, and that's okay. And we're and we're okay with being hated. No, nobody should like being hated. That's weird. It's a if you revel in the fight. And the bloodlust—that's not actually appropriate, right? You, you ought to, you know, try, strive to at peace. But when push comes to shove, you got to be ready. That yeah, I'm going to be hated, but not because I hate them, but because essentially their quarrels with the truth. Yeah, and that's a courageous stance that I think every Christian has to take, even if you're not planning on writing an apologetics book or becoming a meme lord on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a meme lord, yeah. I won't deny it. And so uh, for any Christian who has to take that stance uh, that I may occasionally be unliked or disliked uh, or hated because of my commitment to biblical truth, and they're wrestling with that, what kind of advice do you give to them in counsel? One thing that – this is going to sound weird. One thing is obvious. One thing is that um, – what God thinks of us is what matters ultimately. And what people think of us doesn't matter in the end at all. It just doesn't. And, and all throughout history, there have been Christians who stood for the truth um, and did what was right, and they were loathed, but God did not despise them. In fact, in the Bible, that's the pattern. The pattern is the word. Jesus, <laughs> I mean, I, gosh, go back and read the Bible more carefully. Jesus says all the time, the world's going to hate you. It, well, that's the pattern. You'll be despised. we rejected. People will literally kill you. The book of Hebrews talks about that. Paul talks about that. Jesus talks about that. John talks about that. It's everywhere. So I like, what do you expect? This should be your expectation that you will not be liked. Not, and again, it, so that's, that's one thing. So get your head on straight theologically. If you think everyone's going to love you for being a Christian, you just, that's not what Jesus says. Um, another thing that is interesting, and I thought about this a bit, when I, when I encounter resistance, hatred, animosity, the it's it is easy in my and I do in my head. I think of all these really nasty responses and ways to get them back, and awesome memes I could make dunking on them. and And I have to repent. I have to say, no, that's not how God wants me to think about even my enemies. So I'm supposed to love my enemies. But the funny thing is this: the the if I responded in kind. If I responded to anger with anger and mockery with mockery and insult with insult, that's easy. That's easy. That's my gut. That's my in, that's my gut reaction. You get insulted, I'll show you. I'll, that's that's what a weak man does. What takes effort and strength is turning their cheek. So the funny thing is, people will sometimes say, "Oh, you know, you don't, you don't, you just take it. You you don't, you don't." You, turn, you don't you don't respond with insults you, you because you're weak. It's like no, someone who thinks that has never tried to forgive and turn the other cheek. That takes strength. So that's a it's a weird paradox that I think people look at toughness and not taking you're not taking it and, and hitting back. They look at that as strength. I'm like that's that's easy. The hard part is loving your enemies and and foregoing vengeance and leaving it in God's hands. Um, and the final thing I would say is that. And for all of these issues where Christians are told you are unloving, you are a bigot, or you're you you're an evil person, you're you're a hater. Oftentimes, not only, just forget about the eternal perspective. That's but one thing is eternal perspective. What is loving is what brings people before God and to Jesus. That's loving, and anything else is hating is hatred. If you refuse to share the gospel, if you refuse to tell people about sin and judgment, that is hatred. You you would rather they go to hell than you feel awkward. So that's eternally. But even temporally, even in this life, bad ideas and wrong ideas have consequences that hurt people in this life. And the best example of this that I can think of in our current culture is the, the trans movement. I've been reading a lot of stories of detransitioners. These are uh, men and women mm-hmm. who transition to a different gender and then transition back to their biological 
sex or gender. Um, and, and because of regret, because of saying this did not work out. And oftentimes they were consumed yeah. with regret. And they literally have had, had double mastectomies if they're women, or they had, I wrote a sort of story about a young man who had his, he, he, in his own words, he was castrated because he was trans. And now he's, he's now identifying as a man again. And he's like, that's done. It's, I will never be whole again. And he's, he's, he's truly regretful. And I'm like, and I know people, I, I have friends who've talked to me about how their neighbors are raising their kids to be trans. And I am just horrified. And that's not, and, and so what's the loving response there? I, I, you know, read the stories of these traditioners and say to yourself, you know, biblically, of course, I think we should say, you know, no, God designed you to be a male or female and you should embrace that and rejoice in that. And if you have experience of dysphoria, if you're uncomfortable in your body, let's work through that. But with the understanding that God's design for us is good. But if you say, well, no, I'm going to be loving and compassionate and therefore encourage people to transition, what are you going to do with these stories of people who say, why did you do that to me? Why didn't someone check me? Why didn't someone warn me what I was doing was permanent? And so a lot, in a lot of cases, even if you care about temporal happiness, you'll speak the truth in love. And so if you're timid and say, well, I don't want to feel awkward, think about them. Stop thinking about your own feelings and your own reputation and start thinking about their good and not your own. I, I think that's a very selfish attitude. That I don't want to be awkward. What do you, mean? you don't want to, you don't want to feel awkward. What about their good? What about their flourishing? Think about yeah. them for a change, let alone God's. But yeah, that's good stuff. What do you think are, and well, I'm sure that would be one of them, but what do you think are some of the foremost challenges to Christian faith today? And then if you did tackle any of them in the book, which I know you did a few, uh, how do you address those in your book? Yeah, so again, the, the top three sort of intellectual objections that I tackle in the book are uh, evolution, the hiddenness of God, and the problem of evil. I think the problem of evil first and then divine hiddenness, no, then, then evolution, then divine hiddenness. So, pro- so problem of evil, if uh, God is good and loving and omnipotent, why is there still evil? It goes back thousands of years. The problem of evil does. Uh, evolution, you know, we don't need God to explain why anything exists at all, why, why there's life on earth, why human beings exist. We don't need God. Evolution explains all that. And then the final one is if God exists, uh, why doesn't he make himself more known to us? Or, you know, why isn't there more evidence? Okay, even mm-hmm. if you can see there's some evidence, why isn't there more evidence? So I walk through all of those intellectual objections. And you, again, it's they're pretty long chapters. I don't want to summarize it too much here. I basically just give responses to all those objections and say that in no case is, is this a defeater for Christianity, let alone, I think, sufficient to, to challenge the evidence I present throughout the book and say the, the bulk of the evidence points, even if you think these are strong objections, the, the evidence still is overwhelmingly in, the, in favor of Christianity. Um, but those are intellectual objections. What I think is more common today are, uh, I didn't even put it. I almost want to call it um, religious objections because I think many uh, people in the culture are embracing increasingly sort of a progressive religion. And it has certain core assumptions about reality that Christianity conflicts with. And they're not testable. I mean, the new atheists in the, you know, in some sense, I sort of pine for the days of new atheism when the, 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 the battle was about is Christianity true? At least you're dealing with people who believe in the facts and reality and want their religion to be true. I think mm-hmm. if you embrace this more secular faith, I think actually um, I haven't read a book yet, but uh, Rebecca McLaughlin is an apologist who wrote a book with Crossway last year, but also recently I think wrote a book called The Secular Creed that's about those lawn signs that say like in this house we believe that Black Lives Matter, that trans women are women, that abortion is a right, something like that. All, all this list of these, but it's a it's a creed, and that's so that's the secular religion I'm talking about, and. If you embrace those sorts of beliefs as axioms, like abortion is a right, it's an it's a, it's a foundational part of my belief system. Well, then Christianity must be false, not because there's no evidence for it or because it's not objectively, but because it conflicts with this essential foundational part of my outlook on reality. How, and how do you really how do you deal with that kind of conflict? It's not just well, here's the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. They don't care about that. They're like, mm, yeah, you know, they're like literally they're in their in the back of their minds. Their reasoning is this: if Jesus rose from the dead, then abortion might be wrong, but abortion is not wrong. Therefore, Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. 
Mm-hmm. So, so giving them evidence for the resurrection of Jesus won't actually change the, the, the reasoning is totally different. You'd have to show them, for example, that uh, abor- no, abortion is not okay. It is wrong. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. so that's a whole different venue for apologetics discussions, and it will require a different approach than the one I offer in the book. That, that's, I think, the biggest challenge today is people you know, who believe strongly in LGBTQ affirmation, who believe strongly in abortion, um, just to accept a very different view of our fundamental problem. Like People sort of accept the idea that our fundamental problem as a human race is oppression, and we and the whole the solution is activism. We just fix these structures, we fix the systems, and we'll all be happy. And that's the Bible is like that's just not true. It's just and and even if it were true, it would not fix your biggest problem, which is sin. You know, we could have a beautiful utopia where everyone's just happy all the time, and yet if we're not reconciled to God, we will go to hell. And so if you if you approach reality with the belief that the big problem is so, is a lack of social justice. Then no amount of reasoning will convince you that Christianity is true because Christianity says no. There's a bigger, big problem. Even if you think, yeah. So, so I mean, that to me is ironically, even though I wrote this book, it's, in some sense, it's already obsolete. Now, I don't think it's ever obsolete because the gospel is not obsolete. But I think there are challenges that are um, even more pressing on a day to day basis that the book, this book, does not address. Other stuff I'm working on does, but not this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Neil, it's, it's evident that you're a chemist and not a salesman. Yeah. You just, my book is obsolete. <laughs> I, you know, just, I'm not I'm out to sell books. Yeah. Yeah. No, just, just picking at you, but no, I agree. And I think you, you raised some really interesting discussions in, in that pointing out how a lot of the foremost challenges today aren't um, intellectual, but they would be, um, I think they're, yeah, religious, I think is a good word for it, mm-hmm. uh, based on a, on a secular religion, uh, or coming from a, a secularist religion viewpoint, uh, they're, they're moral objections, um, because they claim that Christianity and Christians are immoral for being against all the things that you just mentioned, or maybe questioning them. Um, a lot of these are manifest in what we refer to and call the culture wars. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's this interesting tension there where we, we have Christian leaders today who claim that it is somewhat being um, unfaithful to the gospel or maybe a disservice to the gospel and the, the kingdom of God to get involved in the culture wars that rather we should just be focused on the gospel because after all, it's only the gospel that saves and not culture wars. But on the other hand, that seems to end up just leading us down a road to where we um, where we completely surrender then mm-hmm. uh, all of these issues to whatever becomes the dominant uh, viewpoint or worldview in the culture. How do you approach that tension? And whenever we have Christian leaders um, making that sort of an argument? Yeah, I don't frankly understand that argument at all because the people that make that, that argument, like we shouldn't be fighting the culture wars. I mean, unless I'm mistaken here, but it seems like three years ago, they were the ones saying we need to stand up against systemic racism and fight for social justice. The same people. I'm like, well, that's also a cultural war issue. It's the other side, right? So so the, it, it just sounds like, I think I saw a pastor say this, when, when you speak against, when you, when you get into the culture wars from the progressive side, then you're a prophetic witness. When you get into the culture wars from the conservative side, then you're fighting the culture wars and that's bad. It's a, it hurts the gospel. So, well, it can't be both. So I'm actually, if I, if I don't, I don't mind personally, if a Christian pastor or a Christian just says, I am completely outside of politics and the culture. I only want to preach the gospel, the message of ruin, redemption, regeneration. That's all I want to preach and I want to be about, and we'll never talk about any application at all. You know, I think it's not great, but it's, I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. If you literally out there on the streets, preaching in the preaching Christ every day, wonderful. And we're power to you totally avoid all this stuff. That said, I think all Christians ought to be engaging the culture for what they think is good and just. And like I said, I don't even, I don't understand when someone's like, well, it's not by the culture. How do you plan on speaking about like the morality of abortion or the morality of sex, different sexual ethics? Like you yet that's part that's in the Bible, right? I mean, thou shalt not murder, you know, the, keep the marriage bed holy. You can't fail to speak about those issues, especially when they are being, they're under assault. I mean, so 
I don't under, I, I frankly just think that's a terrible way to think about the connection between the Bible and reality. The other thing too, is that I mentioned this, I alluded to this earlier. Even if, you know, you preach the gospel, you, you do, you, you talk about Jesus coming to rescue sinners like us and to redeem us and, and the message of, of sin and redemption and regeneration. You talk about that, but even beyond preaching the gospel, Christians are called to be salt and light in the world. We're called to influence people's thinking and, and, and presenting them with an alternate view of humanity, of God's kingdom. This is what Christian, this is what God values, and the church is called to be an alternate community within every community that values things differently. And that and so so there are two things there. One is that even when a culture is not a the people are themselves are not Christian. They are not born again. But even if, if they've simply absorbed the values of Christianity, that will benefit them. Now, be careful. I'm not saying it'll save them. It will not save them at all. If I met a cultural Christian who was very moral upstanding but did not believe in Christ, they're going to hell. And I would tell them that they need to repent and believe the good news. But what do we want to see? Do we want to see families that have loving parents and who invest in their kids, you love sacrificially. Yes, we want yeah. that. Is that better than a broken family where everyone's miserable and everyone's abused? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if we just love our neighbor, even if we, even if they reject Christ, we still want them to embrace reality, which involves embracing Christian values. I don't mean like, again, I'm not saying it. They're going to be, they're going to go to heaven. I'm not saying that, but I would much rather my, my parents and, and Christians in the past, especially those who are most emphatic about justice in that past 300 years, 400 years, 500 years, they were the most emphatic that we want Christian values to influence people, even if they're not Christians. Do you want your neighbor to be a meth addict beating his kids every, every other day? No, I don't want that. I would rather he be, I'd rather he be an upstanding, more loving husband and father who nonetheless needs the gospel than someone who is literally you know threatening his kids every day. Um, so that's, that's part of it. And then the, uh, and the other thing too is that, and again, Again, that's all secondary to the gospel. I get that. But not only do I want them to to have this Christian moral framework, but more than that, that itself is a doorway to the gospel. Meaning this, if non-Christians look at a society in chaos where there are all of these this hatred and misery and grievance, and they look at Christians and the church and they see people that are happy, that are just happy, that have that have happy families, and they love one another, and not just this pla- lacquered on 1950s nostalgia of like the you know no, I mean they're genuinely enjoy. They have friends, they have community, they take care of one another, they weep when they're sad. If someone is sick in the hospital, they'll go and pray for them. That community is um is is a witness to the reality of the gospel. Don't we want that? I mean, it's insane to be like, no, I want. I want the Christian community to be totally dysfunctional. I want their lives to be dysfunctional. What are you, who are you, who are you helping with that? No, nobody. So it, for me, I don't get this dichotomy between we can either preach the gospel or we can you know, try to promote and, 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 and live out Christian values. We do both. We do both. It's easy. Yeah. Yeah, I know. There used to be this thing. Um, well, uh, not used to be. I think it's still around, but I guess maybe I, I identified with it a lot more roughly 10 to 12 years ago where hey, a lot of the people I was listening to and my my heroes were saying things like, you know, it, it's good whenever Christendom has died. Yeah. And we can we can move on past, like you said, some of the, you know, those values of the uh, 1950s and so on um, that were held by predominantly all people, whether or not they were actually personally committed to Christ or not. And I used to think, oh yeah, that is a great thing. And, <laughs> and so on until in the last few years where you see, oh, what happens to a society mm-hmm. whenever it abandons its Christian foundation? And uh, yeah, you have things like we have now where children are encouraged to take uh, hormone therapy and go sure. through gender reassignments and, um, and the, the abortion uh, platform or whatever you want to call it, 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 it is pushed to more and more and more extremes. And uh, yeah, b- bad things really happen. And so it does seem as though it would be beneficial for uh, our neighbor. If we love sure. and our neighbor and desire the best for them, it would be beneficial for our neighbor, for the health of society uh, to 
promote Christian values. Um, and, and moreover, it seems like it would be a part of our calling because mm-hmm. we believe in the Lordship of Christ over all of life. Uh, I think, so well, we, I think that, we believe that, yeah, go ahead. When, when people are looking forward to the death of Christian dumb, I think when I put it this way, like, would you rather that there were, that there were no people who were conf- who confessed Christianity without actually believing it? I, I think I would actually be okay with that. I would, I would, I want people to live, you know, with at least outwardly Christian values, but I would rather they weren't hypocrites. That would be, I think that would, that would be a sort of optimal for me because I don't want people who are not born again or regenerate to name the name of Christ and then bring it into disrepute when they are hypocrites. Or And also, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this, how um, in The Great Divorce, people who think they're on God's side but are unregenerate are harder to reach than people who know they're not Christians but are more like... In other words, I can see people saying we hope there's less cultural Christianity in the sense of not professing the name of Jesus and then not being regenerate at all. And, but well, the other side of that is what we do want them to actually live in light of reality, which means living according to God's law. And uh, here, I think what's actually helped me a lot is actually talking a little bit to people from poor communities who said the only thing holding my dysfunctional family together was this belief, this, you know, they're not, they weren't Christians, but they were still church going. They kind of knew what was right and wrong, but that that held their family together with duct tape, but not, they were just totally shattered otherwise. And they're like, thank God, literally, that there was just this hangover from Christianity. None of them were Christians, but at least they had this shame and this, this feeling they ought to be living a certain way. And they were like, but that kept my, that kept me from dying. <laughs> that kept that kept me from completely giving into like chaos. So I think it's easy for us to who live in the, like this upper middle class suburban lifestyle to be like, yeah, yeah, let them all stop abandoning this Christendom stuff. But if you're on the margins, you thank God for this, the common grace that He shows in the fact that non Christians who reject Him nonetheless have this conscience that pulls them back to like, well, I can't do this because it's just it's not the right thing to do. Uh, even if they, they can't articulate why, but that's a, that's actually common grace here. And don't, so don't spit on that. I mean, if we have a, a, a robust doctrine of total depravity, we should thank God every day that we're not at each other's throats more than we are, that we're not living mm-hmm. in total chaos and, and, and anarchy. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, again, I, I get the idea that we don't want to create, create hypocrites, um, yeah, but we also don't want to create a society where people are in it, it's if you love people you don't want them to grow up with a dysfunctional family hating one another being you know addicted to drugs and alcohol and and sex and pornography we don't we don't want that it's bad for them yeah yeah absolutely yeah and just to go back to i think like you said at the very beginning of this this discussion that it's a false dichotomy mm. like of course we can we can do both so what do you think is lacking in Christian apologetics today? When you look at uh, what the discussions online, whenever you look at books being published and so on, what do you think? Um, what, what do you think is, is maybe lacking, or do we need more of? Do we need to develop better to go forward in the future and have a better Christian witness? I think the number one thing. It's not and this is a Weasley thing to say because I'm an apologist, so of course I say this. I think the the number one thing we need is a, is a deeper connection to the local church. I think that I think more churches need to take apologetics seriously. And um, I, I think that the church, the evangelical church at large does a very, very poor job of discipling Christians into apologetics, into the life of the mind, into discernment. Um, that's, I think it's a symptom of the larger problem with the church as a whole that is we're very consumerist. We, you know, we, we don't want to, we want people to enjoy <laughs> coming to church and have a fun time rather than training and equipping them to, to live costly lives. And, you know, my, so I think that's, that's, a, that's a, I'd like to see more churches say, no, this is a fundamental part of who we are. Um, and then we're going to invest in training people, um, teaching them how to think carefully, clearly, rationally, not be swept up in every wind of doctrine, but to hold fast to the faith delivered to the saints once for all. Um, so that's, and it's not, I guess that's a weaselly answer because it's, it's a, not something that we can do as apologists. It's something that the church has to do and say, no, we need this because and I think we're seeing that. We're seeing Christians with a very shallow understanding of the faith, understanding of how to defend the faith, and, and then also discernment. They can't tell what's true or false because they've never, they don't, fundamentally they don't know how to 
think rationally and biblically through arguments and they don't they don't they don't feel they can feel really well but they don't think very well so that's a big thing i i think that's that's a criticism of us too i think that apologists maybe need to start not with like arguments for christianity even we need to start with teaching kids people how to think People do not know how to think rationally, logically, without by avoiding fallacies. They don't to spot fallacies in reasoning, and I think that has to happen before we even engage in. You can't have an argument whether Christianity is true if you don't know how an argument works, right? So, um, I think that's maybe the thing we can do is start a square one and say, let's step back and ask, how do you know what's true? How do you construct a logical, deductive argument? How do you identify bad reasoning? What's the difference between feeling and thinking? <laughs> Maybe that's a source, a thing that we can do better. And I think there are books that do. I mean, books like um, often the ones I'm thinking of all target um, women, but the ones that are really good at doing that. Natasha Crane's book, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, um, Hillary Ferrer's book, Mama Bear Apologetics. Um, they're both marketed to women, but they do a really good job of saying, "Here's how to think through issues." Um, before, before they even approach like, well, did Jesus rise from the dead? They say, here's how to separate thinking from feeling. Here's how to think about arguments. Here's how to think about propaganda. <laughs> um, so they're, but they're, yeah, they're the, and uh, those are really good approaches to uh, this issue. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, what were those two books again? Mama Bear Apologetics. And what was the first one? Hillary Fair's Mama Bear Apologetics. And then Natasha Crane's book, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. Um. I think but in both of those, again, I think – I know Hillary's book does that, but I think they're both very aware of the need to train people how to think before they even talk about different arguments for God's existence or Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I just wanted to jot that down so I can sure. include those in the show notes for anyone who's interested and may pick up those books too. Just click on the link and you can go to the show notes and I'll have those there. Uh, we're getting close to the end of our time. So what do you want to leave our audience with before we go? Oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, like I said, I think the one, the biggest new element of my book is this argument from the gospel. And so I think if you want to buy it and read that, that section, it could be helpful to you. But uh, even apart from that, let me just say that the essential argument in the in the in those three chapters is that the gospel itself is evidence that Christianity is true. And so if you're hearing this and you're like, well, I don't like apologetics. It seems, it seems too intellectual for me. I'm not comfortable with it. Uh, and it makes me, I don't want to have to deal with skeptical arguments, all that stuff. Uh, I would just encourage you that if you simply grasp the gospel, you, which just means that you recognize that you are a sinner who's broken God's law, who is a moral failure, and you need not to try harder. You don't need a guru who can give you good advice. You don't need a life coach. You need a savior. You need a redeemer. If you recognize that, then Christianity is the only religion on the table for you. And so, and 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 so, if you are a a regenerate Christian, uh, then you do recognize that. That's sort of core to how you view yourself. Is I am a sinner in need of a savior. Um, well, that, that's that's enough for you to be confident that Christianity is true. Because there, I've I'll go I go through other religions in the book and show that they do not believe in the same problem, sin, and the same solution, redemption. Um, and because of that, Christianity is the only offer on the table. And then also for evangelism, if you're talking to your skeptical friends, you don't have to offer arguments that answers every one of their objections. You don't have to do that. In fact, you don't have to do any of that. You can simply tell them the gospel and say, this is true about you. And if you recognize that it is, then Christianity, it follows Christianity is true. Because it's again, it identifies your spiritual need. Um, and that's a, that is a powerful argument. It's all you really need. So you believe it or not, you are equipped to go and share the gospel. You don't have to have all the answers. Excellent. And I think that's great encouragement for, uh, for a lot of us, even if you're not, uh, professional apologists and non-professional apologists, it's a good reminder that, that that's simply what we were called to do. So, uh, thanks a lot, Neil. Appreciate having you on the show today and uh, appreciate your book coming out. Once again, guys, if you are interested in getting Neil's book, Why Believe, uh, it's going to be linked in the show notes so you can go down there and pick up your copy. I also try to jot down all the different uh, books and resources that Neil mentioned so that you can get those in the show notes as well. So go down there to get all that. Thanks for joining us today and uh, hope to talk to you sometime again. Great. Thanks, Aaron. 
Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the